All right, this morning, getting right to it, we're talking about defeating negativity as we go through our attitude adjustment this quarter. And uh, I just want to start by talking about what negativity is and giving an example from the book of Job. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Job chapter 7. I was just noticing this as I was doing my reading for the week. Uh, we are doing the chronological Bible reading uh, this year, and after Genesis chapter 11, they have you jump over to the book of Job. Job is one of the oldest, if not the oldest book in the Old Testament. And so in Job chapter 7, as you would expect, you see an example of negativity. <clears throat> I'll just read a few verses here and there out of that. Uh, look down at Job chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So one of the uh, key expressions of negativity is complaining. There's the bitterness in his soul and the complaining coming out of his mouth. Then go to verse 16. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are breath. So he's blaming God, leave me alone, and he hates his life. That's pretty negative, right? But what I really wanted you to see is this question that he asks in verses 17 and 18. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment? Now, who is who's Job talking to? Who, who is he addressing? He's talking to God, right? This is a prayer. And he's asking God this question what is man? What is so important about us, Job says, that you feel the need to pester us? That's the way he's looking at it. Now keep your finger there and flip over to the next book, Psalm 8. And you'll see the exact same question asked from a positive point of view. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. This is David. David writing from a good place in his life where he's very positive. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's interesting to me you have the same question asked from different perspectives and it makes all the difference in the world. Job is sitting <clears throat> on a ash heap scraping sores after losing his family and all his worldly possessions. And he's saying, what is man that you would go to so much trouble to terrorize him and persecute him in the way that you have? And David is looking from a different circumstance, granted, but also a different perspective, saying, what is man? You are so much higher than us. We're like ants in your sight, maybe even less than that. 
and yet you care about us. You see the contrast? A negative person and a positive person can ask the same question and make it a totally different question. And uh, one thing I wanted to point out is we all live in the same world. And yes, we experience different things in this world, but everyone has their share of troubles. And it's not the circumstances that make a person negative or positive. All of that comes from within. There are some very positive people who have had unimaginable sorrows in their life. And there are some very negative people who have had many blessings and many reasons to be thankful. So the change has to occur within. You can't decide, I'm going to be a positive person when things change around here. We all live in the same world. Okay, go to chapter 8 of Job. And I want you to notice verses 3 through 6. Now this is Bildad, his so-called friend, answering him. And Bildad asked Job, see Bildad's struggling with how to help Job, and he doesn't want the world to be a place where bad things happen to good people. And so he's trying to say, no, no, you're, you're wrong about all this. There is, there's justice in the world. The world is fair. You must have sinned in order to receive the things that you've received. So he asked, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. So you might say build as a positive person, but this isn't the kind of optimism we're looking for because it's an optimism achieved through uh, illusion through lies. He's refusing to look at the actual problem here, which is that Job is a good person who's suffering unjustly. He, he refuses to accept reality, and that's how he gets to positivity. We might say he's sticking his head in the sand, right? But now I want you to go to chapter 9 and look at Job's response. Chapter 9, verse 1. Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. What is so? The things Bildad has just stated about the world is fair, the world is just, evil people suffer, good people prosper. Truly I know that it is so, but... How can a man be in the right before God? Now, I don't want to bring out, I'm not reading this to bring out his agreement with Bildad, because at this point, both Bildad and Job are slightly wrong, wrong enough to miss the whole picture here. Um, Bildad's wrong that things always work out circumstantially for the righteous. Therefore, Job is a sinner. Job is wrong in agreeing with Bildad. Or, you know, he's saying up to this point, that's the way it always has seemed to me. But what I really want you to see is the negative mindset here. I know what you're saying is right, 
But that's what negative people do all the time. I know that's fine for most people, but not for me. I know what you're telling me is true, but I'm the exception to the rule. I know about him, but what about me? And so I think this, these three chapters are a good introduction to the problem of negativity because you can see that negative and positive people live in the same world. You can see the damage done by wrong views that Bildad and Job have adopted. And then you can also see in negativity the refusal to accept reality because of selfishness or pride or narcissism or whatever it may be. And I don't mean to be unfair to Job here because he's going through far more than any of us have gone through and handling it much better than any of us would handle it. And you know the end of the story, everything works out in the end and Job learns and we all learn through that process to trust the Lord that he knows what he's doing. But that's a good introduction. Uh, I also wanted to share with you this quote from Mark Twain. He says, What a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts, not those other things, are his history. What do you think about that? Are your thoughts more important than your words and your actions? Yes, I think one thing Twain is missing here is your words and actions come from your thoughts. So it's all together. You can't really distinguish them out. The thoughts precede the words and actions, but they're all connected. And yes, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, verse 7. So you have to be very careful if you're a negative person, if you're always complaining, if you only see what's wrong in the world and never what's right, if you have trouble with gratitude and saying thank you, if you're hypercritical of other people, if you're overly cynical of everything, if you don't think anything's ever going to work, then this lesson is for you because the Lord wants you to have an attitude adjustment. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Philippians. Very positive book. We've gone to Philippians a lot this quarter because it's the best book on attitude adjustment. It's a very positive book. The key word is joy. And the key verse for this lesson is Philippians 4, verse 8. Let's turn over there and look at that. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Put your mind on positive things. And that's stated as a command for us to follow. So God wants us to defeat negative thinking, and we're going to look at four ways to do that this morning. Let's start with number one. First of all, you can defeat negativity by controlling your thoughts. So the text that we just looked at, as I said, is a command to control your thinking. Set your mind on these things, 
On what things? Things that are honorable and pure and lovely and commendable, things of excellence, things worthy of praise. You think about those things. Don't let your mind go to negative things. And there are other similar commands throughout the book of Philippians. Um, Philippians 2.5, we've talked about. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, the New American Standard Bible says, let this attitude be in you. Have this particular attitude. Philippians 4.2, these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, are commanded to agree in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, the command to rejoice always. And again, he repeats it, rejoice. And then Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So a number of commands about how you should think. Now, the obvious question that I like to raise whenever we're confronted with passages like this is, is God being fair? Because it sounds like he's telling us to control his emotions. And this is where we need to distinguish emotions from thoughts. They're not exactly the same thing. I guess you could argue that you can't control your emotions, but you can control how you interpret your emotions. I want you to think about this for a moment. A feeling is just a feeling, and it makes all the difference in the world the meaning you assign to that feeling. A few examples. You're in Philippians, so go to chapter 1, verse 28. The people of Philippi are being persecuted by some, Paul calls them opponents. And whenever you're being attacked, you feel what kind of emotions? If you're being charged with um, religious persecution, if you're being confronted by physical threats, what kind of feelings do you have? Fear, anger, anxiety. So right now, just think of the, the raw emotion and try not to assign any meaning to it as we look at Paul's advice here. Verse 28. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So he says, you've got this anxiety. You might want to call it anger. You might want to call it fear. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do with your anxiety. I want you to give it a new meaning. And I don't want you to be scared like you're in real danger. I want you to take that emotion, he says, and I want you to interpret it as a clear sign of their destruction and of your salvation, and that salvation is from God. You're being persecuted and feeling that anxiety because you're on the right track. They are reacting this way because they're opponents of Christ and therefore headed for destruction. And you're receiving this because 
you're on Christ's side and they are enemies of Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing? He's telling them how to think about their emotions. Uh, I saw on television, I remember this kid was competing in one of these um, variety shows. And she was asked if she was nervous. And she said, yes, she's nervous, but the feeling of nervousness is the same feeling as excitement. And so she was choosing to look at it as excitement. That's the kind of practice that we're talking about here is Paul saying, don't look at this agitation as, sign, as a sign that you're in danger. Look at this agitation as a sign that you are among the saved. Let's get a few other examples. Um, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse 13. Uh, this is about the emotion of grief or sadness or sorrow. Natural emotion, right? Can you control that? Do you like somebody telling you if you're really down and depressed to snap out of it? That's not very nice, right? Not very nice at all. Uh, but you can benefit from the advice of 1 Thessalonians 4, which is make sure you interpret your sadness properly. He gives two ways of looking at grief here. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. So you're sad. I don't want you to be ignorant. I'm going to teach you how to interpret your sadness. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then he goes on to talk about the resurrection. What is he doing here? You have friends and family members who have died in the Lord. Now, I don't want you to interpret that sadness as total loss. You'll never see them again as no hope. That's one way of interpreting that you see here in this verse. That's not the proper way to interpret grief over a loved one who's passed away in the Lord. He says, instead, look at it as if they are asleep, because that's what it is from Earth's perspective. They're asleep and they shall awake. They haven't ended. They are not gone. They are not extinct. You will see them again. It's natural to be sad. You miss them, but you will see them again. Uh, one more example. What about guilt? That's a very powerful emotion, right? Natural emotion, I would say a needed emotion. The worst thing that our culture is doing right now is erasing shame, shaming shame. We should be ashamed when we do wrong. Feelings of guilt deter us from wrong and help us do what's right. This is our conscience. But turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, and you'll see there is a right way to handle your guilt and the wrong way to handle it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Two types of grief. Godly grief, worldly grief. What's the difference? Can anybody tell me what the difference is? Repentance, repentance right. 
Yeah, godly grief leads to or produces repentance. I can change, God will forgive, which leads to salvation. What does worldly grief get you? Death. Death. Spiritual death. And so the point I'm trying to make here again and again and again is that you can control your mind in terms of um, in terms of what you're thinking. You may not be, and that's not the same thing as controlling your emotions. But you can ask yourself, why do I feel this way and interpret it through God's lens and have a positive point of view despite these negative emotions like anxiety and guilt and sadness? You can control what's in your mind. Uh, Let's go on to the next one here. You can also defeat negativity by remembering your influence. couple of examples here. Back in Numbers 13 and 14, Joshua sends, or rather Moses sends 12 spies out to search out the land that God had given the Israelites. Only two come back with a positive report. The other 10 are very negative, right? What kind of impact did the report of those 10 negative spies have on the nation? The whole nation started losing their minds over this report that the, um, there are giants in the land and we're like grasshoppers in their sight and the land devours its inhabitants, all this mythi- mythical proportions. And, and uh, only two are positive. And the negativity was the more powerful emotion, right? Earlier in Philippians, you have another example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, where Paul is expressing his hope that his positive attitude would be as contagious as the negative attitudes had been in that congregation. So look at that, Philippians 2, 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, in other words, even if I wind up dying because I'm preaching the gospel, I am glad and rejoice with you all Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So in Numbers 13 and 14, you see the contagiousness of negative mindsets. And in Philippians 2, you see Paul's hope that his positive mindset might rub off on the Philippians. Which one is more contagious? You know, diseases have different levels of contagiousness. Apparently, the flu is very contagious right now. Uh, What's more contagious, positivity or negativity? Yeah, everybody is saying negativity, right? We know this, and it's come out more and more in the age of social media because the people behind social media have taken advantage of this. They want eyeballs. That's what they want. They want you looking at social media as long as possible. That's good for their advertisers. And they've learned that negative emotions hook you more than positive emotions. And Facebook, in 2017, they did this. I don't know if this is still the case, but they gave the emotion emojis, like uh, the heart and the anger sign and the surprise sign. There's like five of them. They gave those five times more 
influence on what comes across your feed than just the thumbs up like sign. Now that'll tell you something. They're looking for extreme emotions because that's going to draw people in more. And they're wanting to put the extreme stuff in your feed. And so the negative is more contagious than the positive. Some people can walk in and suck all the energy out of a room, right? They complain, they gossip, they tear down good ideas, they're always pointing out problems, they never present solutions. Do you enjoy being around those people? Not really. But that's not the question. The question is, do they have influence over you? Most definitely. Most definitely. Others breathe life into a room when they walk in. They bring energy and ideas and solutions. Do people want to be around them? Yes. And that can be contagious as well. The question is, which one of those people do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of person that people run away from? You know, they, they spot you down the other end of the aisle at the grocery store, and they just kind of push the cart a little bit faster to the other end of the store. Do you want to be that person? Then just keep being negative. Or do you want to be somebody who brings solutions, solves problems, brings joy, makes people feel better? Be that person. And you'll have no end of friends and healthy relationships in your life. So remember the influence that you have. Some people say, well, I'm not a very significant person. I don't have any influence. Wrong. Everybody has influence. Even the most insignificant people have influence. Number three, how do I defeat negativity? You can do it by God's Word. Let's look at four categories here in the Word of God, starting with the commands. We talked about this already, but the Bible commands us to be positive. Uh, some examples, Psalm 100, verse 1, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Matthew 5, 12, Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. And we've already talked about Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. So even when you suffer, the command is rejoice. So consider the commands of God's Word. Another category are the promises of God's Word. There are rich, positive promises throughout. Like the promise that God will hear your prayer. Uh, Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Uh, there's the promise of God of Jesus' presence in Matthew 28 verse 20. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. There is the promise that you can handle whatever trials and temptations the world puts in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, 
And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's always pointed out in that verse that the promise isn't that he will, he will deliver you from the trial or the temptation, just that you will have the power to endure whatever it is. God will not put anything in front of you that you can't handle. He won't allow it. That's a beautiful promise to hang on to, right? Whatever this is, how hard it seems, how impossible, God has promised me I can endure it. And then finally, there's the promise of life eternal. John eleven twenty five. 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And there are many, many other promises, right? But think about that second category. You have the commands and you have the promises of God's word. And then in God's word, you have its declarations. John three sixteen, probably the best known declaration in scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You are so special that God sent His Son to die for you. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good. In due season we will reap if we do not give up. You're going to get your reward. Just don't give up. And then um, going back to Philippians, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The, declaration, the commands, the promises, the declarations. And then finally in God's word, it's consolations. It's comforting words. And there are so many of these. Uh, Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then one of my favorites, Isaiah 40, 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Make your own list. You know, think about commands, promises, declarations, and consolations. Uh, you know, keep a piece of paper in your Bible as you go through your Bible readings. And when you come across something having to do with positivity, say, oh, wait, that's a command. Write it down. There's a promise. I need to work on believing this promise. Here's a declaration. I need to work on believing what God said is true about the world I live in and not listen to that negative self-talk. Oh, there's a consolation. When I'm really down, I'm going to go back to this one and I'm going to read it and pray about it. That would be a very helpful and very practical way of looking at God's Word and fighting negativity. Okay, one more. we got about six minutes here. So you can defeat negativity also by your words. Words are so powerful. You have to be very careful about the words that you allow to come out of your mouth. Studies have shown there is a connection between words and your brain. And words can trigger the production of oxytocin, which is a neurochemical that helps produce feelings such as well-being, affinity, and security. So pay attention to your self-talk. If you call something a problem, that's going to affect the chemistry in your brain. If you call it a puzzle instead of a problem, and think of it as something that can be solved, and it's a challenge that you are willing to solve, that changes the chemistry in your brain. And 
researchers are talking more and more these days about the neuroplasticity of the brain, the brain's ability to change and adapt on a physical level. This is really interesting stuff. Through time, old habits wear away, new habits form. Uh, through time, old um, thoughts, negative self-talk, it can fade away and positive energy can, can emerge and take over the brain. And one of the ways that you change your brain is through your words. And it's sometimes hard to control your thoughts, but it's easier to control your words. And David did this all the time in the Psalms. And I know I've pointed this out before, um, but I, I want you to look at this again. Look at how much David talks to himself. For example, Psalm 42, verse 5. He's talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. So he's getting on to himself. And this may, some people may see this as a sign of mental illness, but it's actually a very healthy thing to do. Because he knew the power of words. In our class on David, we talked about how he spoke of Goliath versus the way that the other Israelites spoke of Goliath. They called him a Philistine, a champion. They talked about the armies of Israel. And uh, David spoke of this uncircumcised Philistine, and he called Israel the armies of the living God. He was very deliberate in his wording. He was a poet. He wrote songs. He wrote the Psalms. And so as a writer, he paid attention to words, but the reason he paid attention to words is he knew how powerful they were in how they controlled him, his inner life. Another example, uh, Psalm 4, verse 4. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. What he's saying is speak to your heart. Talk to yourself. When you're in bed at night, try some exercises. You know, you might be hearing a little voice in your head saying, you're not good enough. God won't forgive you. This can't be done. Turn that around. Um... Think about the blessings of the day. Thank God for every blessing that you've had that day. However small it might be, focus on that. Think about the people in your life that you are thankful for. Think about these declarations we've been talking about in God's Word and His love for you. And try to control that negative self-talk because it's very important. Uh, we're going to talk in the worship hour about renewal from Romans 12, 2. And uh, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do you renew your mind? One of the ways is through words, your words. God's word is important. We've already talked about that. Other people's words can affect you. We know the sticks and stones thing is not true. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's one of the biggest lies ever told. Words hurt worse than sticks and stones. And they stick with you a lot longer than the bruises. They will follow you the rest of your life. 
So others' words, but your words, pay attention to what you say and stop talking negatively about yourself. Stop putting yourself down because it's a lie. It's a lie and lying is a sin. Say what God says about you and you will be in a safe area with your words. And so that's where we'll leave it. Um, we're about out of time here. I appreciate everybody's patience. Uh, sorry for being late this morning. Um, you can take it up with the, the railroad. <laughs>